Matthew chapter 7, Matthew's in the New Testament, first book in the New Testament, kind of towards the end of your Bible, Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Matthew, we're in Matthew chapter 7. And just a quick report uh, for our regulars, Keith Stout, our, one of our members here, Keith Stout, who had some pretty significant neck spinal surgery last week, thank you all for praying for that, it went really well. I just talked to him a little bit ago. He's able to walk and doesn't have a neck brace. So I appreciate all you, some of you going down to Salt Lake to care for him and praying for him. Definitely a, a big event in his life. There'll definitely be uh, time, uh, opportunities to care for him in days and weeks to come. Well, Matthew seven fifteen. The year was 1820. And a 14-year-old teenage guy, along with his family, was living in western New York at the time in a a somewhat frenzied time of religious revivalism in America at the time. This young man writes, quote, There was in this place where we lived an unusual excitement on the subject of religion. He writes that the Methodists were against the Baptists, who were against the Presbyterians. They are all sort of fighting against one another. And he wrote, furthermore, quote, I said to myself, what is to be done? Who is right? How am I to discern what is right? So he claims this young man, he said he took a Bible and opened to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, if anyone lacks wisdom, ask God for it. So it was the spring of 1820, and he went into the woods and asked God, began to pray, when all of a sudden, he writes, he claims that he was, quote, seized upon by some power which entirely overcame me. He could not speak. He writes that thick darkness gathered all around him. He thought he would be destroyed. He claims that, quote, the power of some actual being from the unseen world who had such marvelous power as I had never felt. I saw a pillar of light exactly over my head, above the brightness of the sun, which descended gradually until it fell upon me. End quote. He claims that God the Father and Jesus Christ appeared to him. He then asked them, which denomination is correct? Which should I join? To which he claims they responded, they're all corrupt and evil. All of them are wrong. He spoke of this vision to others, many of whom brushed him off. Then on September 21st, 1823, a fascinating thing happened. So he claims. An angel by the name of Moroni appeared to him in his room. Moroni revealed to him that he would be a prophet, influential among all the nations. Furthermore, that Moroni, he supposed, said there was a book he was to find, and there were these golden plates. The book had been inscribed on these golden plates, which give an account of, quote, the former inhabitants of this continent and which also contained the everlasting gospel as delivered by the Savior, Jesus Christ, to these ancient inhabitants. This individual was told he would supposedly restore the church of Jesus Christ to the earth, and as Mormonism teaches, quote, that he, this individual, would be a prophet just like Moses, Isaiah, and others in biblical times. This individual, of course, is Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, and the supposed gold plates contain the Book of Mormon. Smith claims to have quickly found the plates, he writes in his autobiography. They were located in a stone box upon a hill. The writing, he claims, was some sort of reformed Egyptian language, which he translated with the help of Uman and Thummim, which were basically these um, Old Testament stones that helped him decipher the code all of which became the Book of Mormon that was published in 1830. 
The plates, however, are not around. Unlike the biblical texts, we have thousands of copies of the New Testament, for example, including the Dead Sea Scrolls of the Old and others. What happened to the supposed golden plates from which the Book of Mormon came? Joseph Smith claimed that many were trying to steal them from him. And so the same angel Moroni came down, took them away from him, and he yielded them up. And Smith wrote on May 2nd, 1838, the angel still has them to this day. Smith claims that later John the Baptist then appeared to him and declared him the first elder of the true church. And so was born what is called today the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day, the Latter-day Saints or Mormonism. We don't have time to get into it all, but a very controversial history surrounds the life of Joseph Smith, scandal, criminal activity, shame, things like after which polygamy were practiced and propagated, though they're less in vogue today in mainstream LDS, and so those doctrines have been altered a bit. Joseph Smith also advocated a form of charismatic theology, practicing the frenzied non-language utterances or speaking in tongues, as it's sometimes known, as well as advocating things like prophecy, revelations, visions, of course, which he had to do in order to propagate additional words of God, thereby producing uh, another supposed book from God. Mormonism claims to have four sacred books, not one, but four. Of course, the Book of Mormon. Book of Mormon, which is called Another Testament of Jesus Christ and claims to be a record of God's work among an additional people from the years of about 2000 B.C. to uh, A.D. 400. It claims that a group of Jews left Jerusalem oh, about um, 600 B.C. and went to the Americas. Went to the Americas, to the American continent, after which they became a great civilization, uh, and then to whom uh, the resurrected Christ appeared on the American continent and uh, formed what is known, quote, his church among them. This is quoting Mormon doctrine. Two other sacred books, of course, uh, they would claim the Bible and they would also claim what is called the Doctrines and the Covenants as well as a book known as the Pearl of Great Price, which contains various writings and history and an autobiography of Joseph Smith himself. A fascinating read. I would commend it to you uh, to read from the horse's mouth Itself. Furthermore, the Book of Mormon here claims and teaches that only fools say the Bible is sufficient and that other scripture is not needed. In 2 Nephi 29.6, quote, Thou fool that shall say a Bible, we have got a Bible and we need no more. A new revelation, furthermore, is permitted. What does that have to do with Matthew 7? You'll see in a moment. It claims new revelation is permitted, which is Kind of similar to the doctrine of papal authority in uh, Roman Catholicism that can come from uh, the Pope. Similarly, in Mormonism, can come from the prophet or the president of the church. Currently, of course, that person is Thomas Mason. Monson, excuse me. Uh, each prophet, they claim, is chosen by God through revelation. Now, briefly, how do some of the things, the doctrines, compare to those of the Word of God? Uh, probably the greatest error in Mormonism is the sufficiency of Scripture. God's Word teaches there are no other books needed. There are no other books containing the Word of God. A couple of quick scriptures I'll throw up there just, just to verify that. Uh, from, excuse me, Proverbs 30. Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and be found a liar. And of, clo- of course, uh, Revelation 22, the Bible closes with these words. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. So the Bible alone contains the word of God. Furthermore, Scripture says, Galatians 1.8, Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven, even if an angel comes whether his name is Moroni or Gabriel or whatever, if he should preach to you another gospel, contrary to what we've preached to you, he is to be accursed. Very simple. 
Also, since the first century apostolic, since the first century apostolic era, true and qualified church leaders are to be affirmed and appointed not through visions, not through dreams, uh, not through subjective means, but through other true and biblically qualified leaders, 1 Timothy 3, 4.14, and so on. Mormon teaching also denies one of the most important biblical teachings, which is the, that of the triune God, that the true God is triune. One God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Instead, they propagate the idea of three gods, that God the Father and the Son have a body of flesh and bones as tangible as a man's. The Holy Ghost does not have a body of flesh and bones, but is a sort of form of spirit. God the Father was once a mortal who lived on earth. He died, was resurrected, glorified, grew to a godlike status. He is the literal father of all spirit children, including Jesus, whose divinity is derived from the parent-child relationship. Jesus, of course, is the spirit brother of Lucifer, who is a created being by God, they propagate, who himself was a created being. And according to Mormonism, everything in the universe, including God, is ultimately governed by these eternal transcendent laws and principles. All the Father's children, including humans, possess the same potential to become gods, like the Father, Jesus, Holy Ghost, since they're the same species. And furthermore, it claims every human spirit once existed as a divine intelligence after becoming spirit children of the Father. Prior to, prior to creation, human, spirit, human spirits were literal children of heavenly parents, and, and on and on it goes. More could be said, and this is not intended to be an exhaustive theology of LDS doctrine. And by the way, if you're here tonight and you, are, you embrace LDS teaching, I'm glad you're here and we'd love to talk to you. I hope that this study will be uh, insightful to you and maybe cause some, uh, uh, some thought. But to bring this back full circle, as we're studying from the words of Christ tonight, there exist such things as false prophets. False prophets. Those who would teach another gospel, alter the word of God, play fast and loose with the word of God. And Joseph Smith, no doubt, is one of history's most notorious false prophets. Without question. One of the most, one of the worst false prophets there ever has been. Deceptive lies. Whether or not he knew what he was doing, we'll, we'll talk about that. Do all false prophets need to have a, 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 an apparent malicious intent? Do they need to know that they have a malicious intent? Maybe not. You read, it's fascinating, when you read Joseph Smith's autobiography, he says, look, man, many, many people were telling me, you're off your rocker. He says, but I, I swear to you, this happened to me. I swear to you that I experienced this dark presence come upon me, and I saw Maroney come down in my room, and I saw the, I mean, he's like insistent in his autobiography. My personal opinion is that it did happen. And we'll talk again more about what about these things that happened. It's a false religion founded by a false prophet, which brings up the bigger issue. How do we know, how do we identify false prophets? How do we um, address this issue? Why is this, why do we have to talk negative? Why can't we talk about happy things and butterflies and cotton candy type things and flatter each other? Because the value of the word of God and the gospel is unspeakably, infinitely valuable because it contains the true one way to know God and go to heaven through faith in the biblical Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else. So let's get into it. Follow along. I'm going to read Matthew 7, verse 12. I'm going to read through verse 23. Just to give a little context. And we're not, we won't even make it through verse 15 tonight. Matthew 7, starting in verse 12, Jesus says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce bad fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Verse 21. Not everyone... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many. Notice those words there. Many. Will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? We, we, we prophesied in your name. And in your name we cast out demons, and in your name performed many miracles. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, Jesus is finishing what is known in Matthew 5 through 7 as the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached on this planet by God, God in the flesh, the fully God, fully man. And one of the things, if you've been with us, and even if you haven't, that our Lord is doing is he's correcting false teaching, teaching from false teachers and false prophets. They were tampering with, in first century Judaism, many who claimed to know God, who who warmed benches in the first century equivalent of churches. Many claimed to know God and thought they were teaching the Bible, but were tampering with the most important information and news on the planet, that is the news of how to be right with God, how to know God, how to have forgiveness of the love of God, as we sang, that is in his word. What more can he say, as we sing? It's right here, but there are these, there is this phenomenon called false prophets and false teachers for reasons which we'll examine mostly next week, Lord willing, that come and twist these things and Just kind of tweak them sometimes a lot, sometimes just a little. They tamper with the good news of Jesus Christ, of how to get to heaven. Things of eternal matters, which is why Christ our Lord is adamant. Verse 15, beware of false prophets. Beware. Christ has made it clear, look, Places like Matthew 5, 48. If you're going to get to heaven by your own doing, you have to be perfect morally in every fiber of your being. So we've seen as we studied last week that the door to get to heaven is closed as far as human works go or any other way but Jesus Christ. Unless you're perfect and you're not like me, you can't get to heaven by your works. That has been the point of the Sermon on the Mount, that we would despair of any moral finesse on our own to ascend a stairway to heaven. There is no stair. It is Christ. He loves us. He has died for us. He is the way. And this is what Joseph Smith was tampering with and others. False prophets are those who lead others, whether knowingly or not, Away from this narrow path that leads to life. There are many individuals out there on the broad road themselves whose teaching, whose influence, whose ministry tend to point people away from this narrow path. So entering the narrow gate, as we studied last week, verse 12, 13, 14, indeed is shown as difficult. And it is even more difficult with these added words when you have people like false prophets out there. Why does this teaching on false prophet follow the narrow gate teaching? Because Jesus is saying, look, not only is the gate narrow to life, but you have obstacles out there like false prophets who would say, hey, this way, come over here to the broad way. So then it is so loving of our Lord. It is so loving of him to say, look, beware of these obstacles to the narrow gate. He says this because he loves us. Beware of this hazard. 
And let me say in our day that there are likely the most amount of false teachers and prophets that there have ever been in human history. Simply because there are more people, but also because Satan is alive and doing his work. And as we'll see in our study, over, over the centuries, like what qualifies a false prophet keeps getting like a little more narrow and narrow and narrow as far as the false prophets keep getting closer and closer and closer to the word of God and the true message. They're never arriving upon it. What does that mean? We'll, we'll study that. False teachings have been multiplied throughout history. So because it's such a grievous and widespread problem in our day, we'll attempt to grow in our understanding and take a few lessons or so, a few weeks to study this. With that then, with all his introduction, our big idea, I'll put it up here on the screen, it's in your bulletin, because this is our big idea, because Christ cares for his glory, for his word, and his people. We're to guard against false teachings and teachers who would steer people away from the narrow road to eternal life. This is so loving of Christ. In the same way that it's loving of your, your pharmacist to say, your pharmacist to say, no, don't take those drugs, they're toxic. Don't do that. So in our outline, we're going to see this. Truths for understanding false teaching and teachers. I don't know how many. We'll, we'll just see what God does here. Truths for understanding false teaching and teachers. Number one is this. And, and why do we have to be negative? Because there is something very positive to guard here. That's why. Number one, false teachings and teachers are things we are to guard against. Very simply, it's things we are to guard against. Be, be on the lookout for. Be on the lookout for. This is in the Bible for the same reason lighthouses are on the ocean. There are hazards hazards to the otherwise safe, narrow passage. Be on, we're to be on the lookout. Look at verse 15 with me. We'll get right into it. Beware, verse 15, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Notice that word, beware. Do you see it? In the Greek, in the original text, the Holy Spirit breathed text, the idea of that word, beware, it means to turn the mind towards something. It means much more than a quick glance, oh, that's nice, what's next? It means turning the mind towards. It means the idea of fixing one's attention on, uh, to be attentive towards something or to watch out for something. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the word is translated, be on guard. Be on guard. Be vigilant. Uh, as, as, again, as in hazard waters on a coast where there's coral reef you could shipwreck on and rocks you could run into, be, be on the watch for hazard. Don't take a passive stance, take an active stance. Furthermore, notice that the word is a command from Christ. It's not a suggestion. And the command in the Greek, it's, it's a verb tense which communicates constant action. It doesn't mean, well, now and then, but it means continual, a regular state of being attentive towards this. Also, the command here is not for certain, uh, you know, a certain portion of God's people, but it's for all of God's people. The audience here are uh, fishermen and uh, villagers who live on the Sea of Galilee, everybody. So the idea that Christ is saying here is, look, as a way of life, be regularly attentive towards teaching and, and watching out for false teaching. And so really this is a call for two things. So number one, uh, very simply to be on guard. Number two, to be on guard for a certain thing. Christ desires, big picture here, Christ desires his people to be a people of discernment discernment. Discernment has the idea of when a, when a net would go down into the sea and pick up all kinds of creatures, and you're, you're, you have the ability to look at this whole mess of things and pick out the good, leave the bad. Discernment. There are sheep-clothed wolves out there. 
Some know they're wolves. Some don't even know it. And we're to recognize their fruit. For that, we have to exercise discernment. And among other reasons, back up here, this is because Christianity is not arbitrarily defined. Christianity is not an arbitrary experience. It's not a subjective mysticism. Whatever peaks our emotions, well, then that's what's right. That's what biblical Christianity is. It is about a true God who is a certain way and does things a certain way and defines things a certain way with propositional truth, with affirmations and denials. And we, out of love for Him and worship to Him, are to worship Him with our minds and we affirm what He affirms and we deny what He denies because we love Him, because we're to worship Him with all our soul and with all our mind. All our mind. I mean, there is a lot of content here. God could have just given us, you know, a two-sided sheet of paper. I mean, you talk about content. Our God is a God who wants us to worship Him correctly with our minds. There exists a sovereign God who made us. Furthermore, our God is jealous in a holy, good, right, and perfect way. He's jealous for our minds. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says this. He's talking to the Corinthian church who were plagued by all kinds of false teaching and teachers. He said, I'm afraid to the church that as the serpent Satan deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts, notice, thinking, mind, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel, notice all these wrong teachings from the one you accepted. Oh, what a tragedy. You put up with it readily enough. Paul is so grieved because there is bad doctrine, and that's not an end in itself, but it draws them away from the purity, pure devotion with their minds and their hearts, therefore, to Christ. So this is a major deal for God. He wants to be thought of correctly. In the same way that spouses, you as spouses, your spouses want you to think about you correctly. Infinitely more. Paul also says then, you can see his, uh, uh, his, his zeal for this. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We're to be watchful. We're to be watchful. Beware. Identifying sheep-clothed wolves is is necessary, though it's very unfashionable in our day, isn't it? Very unfashionable. And it's interesting, as we observed in Matthew 7, 1 through 2, I mean, we exercise discernment in so many lesser areas of our lives, the food we eat, the workouts we do, the vitamins we take, the dentist we go to, the tire shop. Oh, don't, don't go to him. Don't go to him. Oh, you know, the computer we buy. But when it comes to the most important thing, for some reason, it is out, it is out of fashion to be watchful. May God help us to think correctly about this. In fact, we could say that any repulsion of observing Christ's command here to be watchful of false teachings and teachers itself is a wolf-like tendency. Why? Because wolves don't want other wolves to be discovered I'm not saying that if we don't like it when false teachings are pointed out, then we're a wolf itself, but simply the avoidance of doing so could be opening the door to the plague of false teaching and doing more harm to God's people. We're to guard against this, number one. Number two, because it's a serious matter, therefore, building on number one, false teaching and teachers, they need to be biblically defined. Because this is a serious matter, false teaching and teachers must be biblically defined. There is a way to define these things. 
There are, so the false prophets exist, false teachings, people in influence who claim to speak for God, influence for God, but claim to do so, but do not. And so because this is a serious issue, false teachings and false prophet, this is not a term we can just throw around flippantly and kind of play fast and loose and carelessly just call someone a false prophet. We may not do that. This requires careful thought, a slowness to do that. At the same time, the other side of the coin, if something or someone should be identified as biblically false, then neither should we kind of hem and haw and say, well, I don't want to, you know, uh, that silence could be very unloving. For those reasons, God says, there's a way to go about designating this thing and identifying a false teacher, false prophet. He gives us very helpful instruction here and in other places in his word, which we will study. If we're going to conclude someone is a false teacher in teaching, we better know what we're talking about. So notice verse 15, beware of the false prophets. This Greek word, it's a compound word in Greek. It means pseudo prophet, a pseudo prophet. To better understand what a false prophet is, we're going to look at true prophets first. And when you think of true prophets, you think of people like Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the 12 minor prophets, um, John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul also fulfilled the prophetic office in many ways. So a prophet was an individual. You know, we, people say we have many prophets today. There are, there are no such thing as prophets anymore, and there never has been since the first century foundational church age closed and the Bible is completed. How do you know that? We'll prove that from the text. There are no such thing as prophets anymore. Now, an Old Testament and a New Testament prophet were those to whom and through whom God gave inerrant revelation or exact words from God that therefore had no error ever. Not, well, they were 89% true or 79 or 99, 100% true all the time, or they were not a prophet. And we're not going to have time to get into every little innuendo of that. You can ask your GC leader or whatever about that. We can point you to some more study. That is very important to say. Now, this is not to say that every time that a prophet spoke, um, it was words from God or without error when they spoke. However, the true prophet was the one who, when they said, look, thus says the Lord, you know, you see that phrase all over in the New Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, sometimes in the New, when they said, this is what God has said to me, when they said God spoke to me, it was always 100% true, without error. It always, if it was a prediction, it happened. It was, it was fulfilled or would be fulfilled. If it was a statement on doctrine, it's 100% true. Why? Because it was always God's exact words. This is critical to understanding what a false prophet is. The prophet received, uh, in those days, received factual words from God, which means then, as prophets are often saying, thus says the Lord in Old Testament and New Testament times, whatever they said after that, you know, they would always qualify it because they knew, man, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm not just going to say, well, God was moving in my heart and he spoke to me. And they were reverent. You see, th- thus says the Lord. Okay, this is God. This is not just, uh, I'm not just, you know, seeing a vision out in Western New York here. This is thus says the Lord. And then whatever they said after that was infallible, was therefore authoritative and binding on humanity. Why? Because it's from God. Because of the source of it. Every word. They're pure, the pure words of God. For that reason then, to say things, you hear this often today, to say things like, well, God told me, um, God spoke to me, um, I heard God say, God gave me this hunch, uh, God moved in me to know that he is saying this, God spoke to me in a vision, or God spoke to me in a dream, uh, revealed to me these things. To, to say those things, I mean, that is utmost serious. That is, a, that is a serious matter right there. Have you heard someone say that before recently? That is not something which our good, holy, and loving God would have us throw around casually. 
though too often it is. Because you're placing yourself, whether you claim to be or not, you're placing yourself in the holy, exalted New Testament and Old Testament position of prophet. You were claiming to receive revelation from the God of the universe. And for this reason, God gives many warnings on messing with his word. By the way, if you're going to say that, God spoke to me, then, then you better start writing like a 67th, a 68th book of the Bible. Because if God told you, man, that's, that's inerrant revelation. This needs to be written down as the true prophets did in Old Testament, New Testament time. Write it down. More books of the Bible. But there are no more books of the Bible being added. As we saw in Revelation 22, there are no more prophets. Now, let's look back in the Old Testament a little bit to sort of synthesize some, identi- some identities of false prophets. First, we'll go to Deuteronomy 13 here. Deuteronomy 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dream arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, a miracle, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you. So an individual who does a miracle saying, let us go after other gods whom you've not known and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Why? For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart. And with all your soul, you shall follow the Lord and your, the Lord your God and fear him and you shall keep his commandments. Notice the focus is on the word of God. He's testing you to see if you're going to believe him about his word. Listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. But that prophet, notice this, that prophet or that dreamer of James shall be put to death. Because he counseled rebellion against the Lord your God. I mean, that is just sobering criteria there for determining a false prophet. We can make a couple conclusions. A false prophet, number one then, those who counsel to follow after a different God from Scripture in the name of God. Those who counsel to follow after a different God from Scripture. Uh, Like gods who, oh, I don't know, there are three gods. They have a brother named Lucifer. They're created beings, that kind of thing. Deuteronomy 13, an individual might perform some sign and it could really happen. It could really happen. However, if they suggest following after some God that's not the God of Scripture, or they suggest a doctrine contrary to God's Word, then no matter what miracle they, they seem to do, no matter what thing, man, I, a good friend of mine, man, this, I have this dream, God spoke to me, told me this thing, and then this friend of mine like went to these different states and it all happened. It all happened, the thing that he supposedly dreamed. But he wasn't propagating Knowledge, worship of, and following after the God of Scripture. Friend of mine. False prophet. Tragically. If, if, our, if an individual says, yes, but I saw this, man. I heard this. I dreamed this. And then it happened. You cannot deny my experience. If the experience conflicts with the word of God, though the experience happened, we are to simply say, yeah, that that may have happened. That may have come true. But God's word, not my experience, is the authority. It's not what happened to me from which we make new doctrines and truths for faith and practice. It's what does it say from which we formulate doctrine and truths and practice. That is a critical difference. It's really an epistemological issue in that sense. Uh, that from which we, get, we determine and gain knowledge. Don't argue with someone on this issue if their experience happened or not. Sure, man, that might have happened. But bottom line, what does the word say? So number two, a false prophet could be an individual who propagates experience as superior to the word of God. They propagate experience as superior to the word of God for things that are being made, you know, faith, rules of faith and practice, doctrines. The two conflict and they will not turn from propagating their error. Sadly, they're a false prophet. Let's go to Deuteronomy 18 as well. We'll put that up here. More instruction. 
But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak. So someone who says, hey, the Lord said, and God never commanded him to speak it, or which he speaks in the name of other gods. Notice again, that prophet shall die. He shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, this, and that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. I mean, in, in, in Old Testament, theocratic times in Israel, th- these are capital offenses. Do we see that? I mean, we have whole denominations, movements in Christianity, books, women's books, men's books, who are just flippantly saying, oh, the Lord told me. The Lord is not telling any of them. Under Old, Old Testament law, they'd be executed. Executed. So we could, number three, a false prophet, an individual who insists God told them, but he did not. He did not. Which is any individual after the first century who says God told me. Unless they mean, I read it in the Bible. I mean, verse 20, let's put it back up there just real quick if you would. Any individual simply speaks a word saying God says or God told me, but God didn't tell them, over they shall die again we're not living under theocratic old testament theocratic rules so far false prophets are no longer to be executed but i want you to notice the seriousness with which god takes this issue i had a dream god told me if 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 god if an individual says god told me i mean they're a false prophet now we'll see in a minute that even if the thing they say is true, God still did not speak to them unless, again, they mean they read it from Scripture. More on that in a minute. Also, we're going to see, number four, false prophet, those who insist on preaching or propagating dreams, visions, and imaginations as from God. Who speak their imagination, who speak their subjective ideas, who suppose God is giving them revelation from their dreams. Not the idea that, hey, I had a cool dream. I mean, I don't really know what this means. Is this, I don't know. But those who are specifically saying, God told me in my dream. And the context of this next passage, Jeremiah 23, is, is a very, really a, a prominent 6th century B.C. Judah, where Jeremiah, the true prophet, is warning people that, look, he's saying, look, the Babylonian exile is coming here. And I'm warning you of a pending doom. And they're all, ah, oh, you're, a, you're a gloom and doom preacher, man. You're just a, you're a naysayer. Bring in other prophets who tell us good things and happy feelings. And notice what God says, Jeremiah 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They're leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel or in my word, then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil ways and from the evil of their deeds. So false prophets, again, those who who make dreams and imaginations the subject of their teaching and preaching. Jeremiah 23, 25 also. I have heard, God says, what the prophets who have said, have said who prophesy falsely in my name, saying, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long? Is there anything in the hearts of the prophets who prophesy falsehood? Even these prophets of the deception of their own heart who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams, which they relate to one another just as their fathers forgot my name because of Baal. The prophet who has a dream, relate his dream. But let him who has my word speak my word in truth what does straw have in common with grain god's really dreams are like straw they burn up declares the lord verse 29 is not my word like fire declares the lord and like a hammer which shatters rock therefore behold i'm against the prophets declares the lord who steal my words from each other behold i'm against the prophets 
declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare the Lord declares. But I'm against those who prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods. Notice what he calls them, reckless boastings. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefits. Oh man, tell me your dream. Tell me, tell me what you heard. Tell me your word from the Lord. This is so helpful for me. Nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit. Straw. The emphasis back to the true word of God. This is no new problem. But I saw, but I, but I saw, but I heard, but I experienced, but I dreamt. Nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit. Now, the problem is the prophets aren't the only guilty one because often there is a large market for them. They're a hot commodity, false prophecy and false teaching. Again, in Jeremiah, I mean, this is 6th century, 6th, 7th century B.C., Jeremiah 5, verse 30. An appalling and a horrible thing, God says, has happened. In the land, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule in their own authority and my people love it so. My people love it. I mean, you are able to amass a huge crowd, you 6th century B.C. false prophets, because my people love it so. And the same is true today as we read earlier, 2 Timothy 4.2. Paul says, preach the word, not your visions. Preach the word, the existing word, the 66 books, in season, out of season. Reprove you, brook, you exhort with great patience and instruction. Why, Paul? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. So the false teachers are not the only ones at fault here. Many who fill pews are also to blame. Because the plain old word of God, unpacked verse by verse, it's just, it's just too boring. You know, it's, um, it's not exciting enough. It, uh, it doesn't flatter me enough. It doesn't deliver that emotional buzz that I need every week. Because after all, the goal of God in life is my emotional buzz to surf that Flattery, fluffy feeling high instead of worshiping my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength through the Spirit who illuminates His Word. Now, back to the issue of prophets in our day. Do they exist? In New Testament times, the gift of prophecy was for the foundation age of the church. If they're speaking the Word of God, which they are, then they were used to complete the Word of God. The Bible and lay that foundation of the church, as Paul says, a prophet himself, um, in many sense, in Ephesians 2.18. Paul wrote, look, for through him, Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Do you see that? The church is built on this foundation, apostles and prophets. When you build a house, how many foundations do you need to build? build one. And do you keep building the foundation? No, it's, it's, and it's past tense. It's a perfect tense. Having been built upon. Foundation's done and other things are happening in the last 2,000 years. Praise God, we have the completed Bible. So the gift and office of prophet ended when the foundation of the church was finished. There are no more individuals who are prophets because defined uh, because biblically defined, again, it ended with the close of the canon of the Bible. And so here we are. The Word of God is enough, friends, brothers and sisters. You see, the, the commands are to uphold 2 Timothy 1, 12, 13 says, Uphold what we already have. Don't add to what we already have. If you're claiming you're hearing from God, then fundamentally you are claiming that we need to add to what we already have. We have a body, a fixed body of words about which we need not speculate, 
but to study them, know them as a gift from our great God. And as we turn to the communion table, first of the month we celebrate our Lord's death for us. Again, much of this is for the purpose of guarding the words of eternal life. That there is one way to know God, to love God, to, to be right with God. And it's already written down. The ink is dried already. Done in the first century. The great news that as we celebrate at the communion table, Christ went to the cross. God offered His own Son as our way to get to heaven. Heaven came down to us because we could not ascend to it by our deeds. This is the news, the good news that is contained in the Bible. It is to be guarded with vigilance because it is so valuable. Because these are eternal matters. Because God wants us to know Him. And it's only through the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray tonight that you would trust Him as your Lord and Savior. The elements here, the, the bread and the cup, there's no magic per se in them, though they are very significant. The bread that we have here symbolizes this, the, the body of Christ that the scriptures tell us that he went to the cross intentionally. It was no accident. It was no, oh darn, I didn't know that was going to happen. This is all planned as the word of God tells us. And, and on the cross, he stood in for us as a substitute because the way to get to heaven is not through some moral inspiration and kind of Christ giving us like a, like a shove, like push us hard enough and we'll see his moral uh, excellence and then kind of that'll launch us. No, he had to be punished for our sins. He had to remove the condemnation. That's what we celebrate. The cup symbolizing his blood that was spilt all over because as Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So I pray to God that you would come to him tonight, put faith in him. Maybe this might be the first time you ever meaningfully celebrate the Lord's table. The purpose of this is a remembrance. We come, I'll give you a minute here, and then we'll come and take a piece of bread and a cup. And as we do, we'll, we'll give you some time just to thank God. It's not a time to kind of make new promises to God so much, just a time to remember what Christ did. That we can be right with God, not because of what we do, but because of what Christ has done, that it is finished. And the bread and the cup are those, those visual reminders of what he's done. That based on his work, not ours, you can be right with God. You can be forgiven. This is the news that is to be guarded vigilantly in this book.